Street Photography Magazine Podcast, Episode 57, Michael Stern and the Art of Storytelling in Commercial Photography. Hello again, this is Bob Patterson, publisher of Street Photography Magazine, and I'm here all by myself this week, but that's okay, because uh, we have a really good interview for you. But before we get into that, I'd like to talk about publishing your photos or your photo stories in Street Photography Magazine. One of the main missions of Street Photography Magazine is to give you, the street photographer, an opportunity to share your work and have your work seen by people around the world. Because of that, many people ask us, how do I get my photos published in the magazine? So I thought I'd share a little bit of that with you right now. Basically, you can do it in two different ways. You can submit individual images to be considered to be published in what we call our Street Shooter of the Month section of the magazine. Each month we choose about six photos to be published from hundreds of photos that are submitted by our readers and other members of the community. Or you can submit articles or photo stories or photo projects, whatever you want to call them, to be considered for publication in the magazine. And they're handled in two different ways. First, the single photos. You can go to our website, which is streetphotographymagazine.com submit. That takes you to a page that tells you how to do it. Basically, you have to be registered on the website, either a subscriber, or if you're not a subscriber, you don't have to be a subscriber, by the way, to submit photos. There's a form on there that enables you to register as what we call a contributor. It doesn't cost anything. You just fill out the form and submit it, and you create a login, and then you can log in and submit photos. Anyway, once you're set up, log into the website, and then there's a submissions tab at the top of the menu. Underneath that is a photo submissions form. If you're not logged in, you can't get access to that form, so you have to make sure you're logged in. And then use that form. All you do is upload a photo, keep it to 1600 pixels wide on the long side at 72 dpi there's a place to put a link either back to your website or to that photo on your own website or any other online presence put the title of the image and that's all there is to it it gets uploaded to our system and we review them regularly now because we get so many submissions we can't respond to them and we make our choices and publish them in the magazine if you have a photo story or a project, here are a couple of guidelines. We like to see no more than eight photos, and we like to include about 1,200 words of text. We find more people look at the articles and appreciate the articles when there's text to go along with it. And that text is up to you. It may be about the technical aspects of the photos you took. It may be about something you learned about the project that you're working on or the story behind the photos, what's going on in that situation where you took the photos. So it's all up to you. But we'd like to see about 1,200 words of text. That's not a lot, and it really helps pull the story together. The photos should be sized to about 1,600 pixels on the long side at 72 dpi. And to submit them, all you have to do is put those photos in a zip file and include your text in a Word document, a Pages document, or just plain text, that's fine too. If you want the photos to appear in a certain part of the article, make sure you include the file name of each photo in the right place. And then include all of that stuff in an email to me at bob at streetphotographymagazine.com. And don't worry about your writing if you're not comfortable writing. And if you're not comfortable writing in English, that's okay. We will edit the article. And if we have any major questions or changes or whatever, we'll certainly be in touch with you. So don't worry about that. If you want more information about this, Ashley wrote a really good article a couple years ago about how to submit a story. And, and it, it's really some good tips about creating a photo story or photo project. That can be found under the submissions tab on our website. The article is called Tips for Creating a Photo Project Article, but I'll also include a direct link to it in the show notes of this show. So please 
submit your stuff. We're always glad to see the work that everybody is doing. We're just really happy to make this magazine an outlet for you for sharing your work and letting the world know about what you do. Okay, our guest this week is Michael Stern. Michael Stern, well, he's a commercial photographer, a longtime commercial photographer. And I tell you something, this guy has forgotten more than most of us already know. He's in the Los Angeles, California area. In addition to being a commercial photographer, he's also a teacher. He teaches a course in basic photography at the LACP, or Los Angeles Center for Photography. Michael specializes in photographing big construction projects and industrial sites. And you think, okay, what's that got to do with storytelling? Well, The real differentiating factor in his highly competitive business is the fact that he is a strong storyteller, and he bills himself as a storyteller, which enables him to drive business and set him apart from everybody else in the field. And the storytelling techniques that he uses, I feel, can easily be applied to any form of photography, particularly street photography. So to learn more, sit back and have a listen to my conversation with Michael Stern. My guest today is Michael Stern. Michael has, uh, well, he's a professional photographer, and his main business is uh, contractor and industrial photography and uh, time-lapse video. He's out in Los Angeles. He's in Southern California, and his client list is like a who's who of Southern California. Companies like uh, Disney, Paramount, Universal, ABC, UCLA, and it goes on and on. I won't mention all of them. And uh, so you might be thinking, what the heck does this have to do with street photography? Well, I'll tell you, if you take a look at some of his candid photo work that he does in and around job sites, you'll know for sure, because uh, he does some really amazing work, uh, work that anybody who's a street photographer wish they could do. And he is also... A, uh, an instructor at the Los Angeles Center for Photography. You might remember Julia Dean, who's the director of uh, LACP. Uh, Michael does some training for her, and he's been doing it for quite a while. One thing I really need to point out, when you go to his website or you look at his email, he's got a tagline, which I think is probably one of the most telling taglines you can read. It says, Think like an artist, shoot like a director, and edit like a storyteller. So bottom line, Michael's a storyteller, and that's something that all of us can use help with. So Michael, welcome. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Bob. Uh, I was enjoying that intro so much, I could go on all day having you talk about my favorite subject, which is me. <laughs> but no, thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, so just just to set the record straight with your audience, the the aforementioned client list of Disney, UCLA, UC, USC, Paramount, that was in a previous life when I was a commercial photographer in Burbank, and I had a 2,500-square-foot studio for 16 years. I ran a co-op. I had other photographers in the space with me, and from time to time, they either shot jobs for me or assisted me. And it was a, a different aspect of my life that went on for some 20 years, and it was a lot of fun. And and Disney was the main driver back then. 20-some years, I did business with them. And we have an expression here at our house called, we love the mouse at our house. And it provided a lot of lifestyle quality for us. And it was a prior life. And uh, But now I do a lot more documentation, sort of straightforward work. What a plum client to get. It was. You know, it's funny. The the things you really need to be successful in just about anything is perseverance and resiliency. And in 1980, I, I got the idea that I wanted to have Disney as a client. And I knocked on their door and sent letters and made phone calls. And they were all very polite and nice, but essentially said, go away. We have somebody. Don't bother us. And I just kept knocking on the door because they didn't know how much they needed me. And uh, I kept pursuing it. And finally, after two years, they gave me a job to just to shut me up and, and hope that I was going to screw it up. And I did such a great job on the work that they were so impressed. It just started a 20 some year relationship with them. But it took it took not hearing no, hearing no as OK, maybe next time. And, you know, that same 
attitude, I think, is what any artist needs and any person really to be successful. If if it's something you really want to do and it's just in your blood, in your DNA, you just have to pursue it and and and, and make sure it works for you. Yeah, you don't ask, you don't get. Right. And so many people, when they get around to asking, they ask only one time, maybe right. two, and then they give up. So you didn't, and look what happened. Well, you know, back in the day, the thinking was that 80% of the sales go to 20% of the people, and mm-hmm. that 80% of the people gave up after three or four tries, and often it took 10 or 12 points of contact to break through with anybody. And this was back you know, 30-some years ago, I guess closer to 40 now. I just celebrated my 40-year anniversary this week. <laughs> so, well, congratulations. Yeah, thank you, and uh, I'm hoping to be successful real soon. Maybe it'll catch on uh, in another 40 years, huh? You know, it, it's been a fun career. It's it certainly had its ups and downs. It's had its joyful moments and pitiful moments, and you know both of those happen because they contrast with each other. Uh, but all in all... Uh, being self-employed has been the single most powerful decision I think I've ever made in my life. So how'd you get into photography to begin with? Uh, despite my brother. Uh, about 12 years old, my brother was 13, and Dad took us to a camera store to buy a Canon TLQL, 35mm DSLR, one of the first ones Canon made, uh, and larger trays, Film canisters, developing tanks, chemistry, tongs, paper, film, bulk film, bulk film loader, the whole thing. And it was all for my brother. We were driving home, and I'm sitting in the back seat and said, Dad, why did you buy Fred all of this stuff? And he goes, well, <laughs> he, he has an interest in photography, and I want to support that. And I went, I'm interested too. And, you know, to his credit, my brother invited me in and allowed me to participate in what he was just learning. And I cannot ever forget the moment I looked through uh, the lens of the camera. It had a pancake focusing screen, and there was a, a bowl of fruit on the table in the family room that I focused the lens onto. And to see that fuzzy center of the viewing screen come into focus, it just sent a chill down my spine. I don't know. It was like getting injected at that moment. And then the next epiphany was watching that blank mm-hmm. that blank piece of white mm-hmm. paper in the dark room in what looked like water under the dark light under the soft light and all of a sudden this image showed up and it was like magic and it sent the hair on the back of my neck up and i'm like 12 years old at the time and i just haven't stopped being that excited about seeing pictures being made whether i make them or somebody else but, of course, for me personally, whether I'm shooting or for money or not, if I'm feeling good or not, taking pictures is such a great leveler for me. Picks me up when I'm down and pushes me further along when I'm happy. And it's, uh, you know, if I could paint, I would be painting. If I could sing, I would sing. If I could act, I would act. Uh, picking up a camera that's the thing that is my has been my mode of expression. I'm I'm grateful I found it early in life. Yeah, you're fortunate to be able to earn a good living at it. Nowadays, it's very difficult for people. Yes. Well, you know, it, it's a struggle for me too. This the last twelve months have been very uneven, mm-hmm. and and uh, in fact, I just had a job fall through yesterday. I thought I did everything right. Met the client at an outreach event sent them my pricing schedule that had everything listed, how I, what my rates are, what I charge for, et cetera, et cetera. They call me about three weeks later with a job. They give me the parameters. I send them a budget. And they went, oh, my God, I had no idea it was going to be this much. I thought it was only going to be a few hundred dollars. And I, I'm thinking to myself, I, I sent you my price list. Well, I misread it. How could you misread it? It's very clear. It's one page. There's nothing hidden. There's no small type. And even when you do it right, sometimes somebody in a company makes an arbitrary decision about how much they think a picture should be worth. And and, and they don't, you know, weigh that against the logistics of getting the job shot, the talent of the person being hired, and the use for the pictures. They, they don't have any concept of that. They just pick a dollar out of their head, it seems, and say, here's what it's worth. 
And yeah. as much as I want to build a relationship with this client, sometimes you just have to walk away. And, and it, it, even for me, I, I'm not immune to that, even even at my elder statesman status. Yeah, or they think, gee, my cousin has a nice camera. I'll just have him come over and do it. Right, right. And, and that that's annoying as well, certainly. And one of the ways that I combated that, and this is something that a lot of people who are self-employed, regardless of their profession, don't do enough of, is when we were uh, first married— I made my wife and I live on 30 cents of every dollar that came in. Mm-hmm. So I put away Smart. money. I put away money for 10 years solid. We drove old cars, wore used clothes, didn't eat fancy dinners, didn't go out. It was all about putting that cushion away. And, you know, it's not if you have a rainy day, it's when it comes and can you weather the storm. And, and, and I was hip to that very early and built up a, a pretty decent uh, resources for myself and my family. So when I've had these, these weak areas in the business, I'm able to get the family through it because I keep an eye on the books and people say, well, I can't afford to do that. Well, if you're buying Starbucks, you can afford to put money away. You know, you start small five or 10 bucks a week. And then the next month you add $2, the next month you add $3 and you build it up gradually. You don't feel the pain. You don't just go, well, I got to put thousand dollars away this month. No, that's very hard to do, but could you put 50 bucks away? And then the next month put away 53 and the next month put away 60. And pretty soon you're putting away, you know, sizable money. And, and the thing is you got to do it for a good 10 years to, to, to build it up. And uh, so I'm in a position where I can walk away from jobs if they're not right. I don't want to do that, but I will do that. And I think that's one of the markers for why I've been successful. That's because not only are you a photographer, you're a business person. Well, you you, you know, I, I appreciate that, Bob. But what I really see myself as is an artist who's been able to run a business, I'm not a business, I'm, you know, but, but some people are business people and they could be selling, you know, ice cream cones as easily as photography, but I'm the artist and I've learned by hook and crook and trial and error and listening and reading and going to webinars, you know, how to manage a business as a self-employed artist. And it, it, it's not easy for me, but you know, nobody loves you like your mother, <laughs> sometimes not even her. So you got to do it for yourself. So how did you make the switch from being a commercial photographer to um, specializing in, in industry and construction, which I think is a very, very interesting niche, by the way? Yes, I, I really like it. I've always wanted to be in this end of the business. Uh, as a kid, I love trucks and dirt. I love playing, building stuff in the backyard. And this is always part of my long-term plan was to get into construction and industrial photography and visual asset development. But I was having so much fun as a studio commercial photographer in traveling around the world on a client's dime and just enjoying the heck out of it. But I've always wanted to pivot. I've always changed the kind of work I do. And uh, in 2003... Uh, it was time to, uh, let's see, gosh, it's been a while. My dad got sick and Mm -hmm. I I took a job teaching at Brooks. Uh, Mm. work wasn't so much fun anymore. Um, and then my dad passed away and it was time the, the two of my tenants in the studio were, were leaving and the owner wanted to raise the rent and, uh, my wife's father had passed away. Her mother got sick. So we decided decided to uproot everything in Burbank and move to Pasadena to be near her mother. And I stopped shooting altogether and was teaching and writing a book and had a podcast. And then, uh, the financial crisis hit. And as an adjunct faculty, you know, we're the first to get whacked. So that, that ended at Brooks. And I was somehow, you know, through savings to getting the family through this, this tough time, I thought, well, let me let me look into time-lapse filmmaking because it had started to come to the fore. And I was practicing. I lived near the Rose Bowl out here in Pasadena. So I was practicing shooting fireworks shows and anything else I could get my hands on. 
and I optimize my website for local searches. And this is the key right here, local mm -hmm. searches. I'm a guy in L.A. I'm not looking for work out of Chicago, New York, and Dallas or wherever. I'm looking for work in the San Gabriel Valley or Burbank. So the Huntington Botanical Gardens, which is located in San Marino about 15 minutes east of me, they were doing a bunch of construction work and they wanted to do some time-lapse films. And so they typed in time-lapse photography Pasadena and I'm, uh -huh. the only, I'm the only name that showed up. If they had typed in Los Angeles, I would have been buried. And, they, they, and so since I was the only name that showed up, I was already the acknowledged expert. And I walked into the office of the, of the director for the initial meeting and he goes, listen, it's your film. You own the rights. We just want to license it. You you make all the decisions. We just hope we can afford you. And I almost wanted to kiss the guy. It's like I've never had a negotiation like that. And probably never will again. I don't. Uh, yeah, that was a definitely. A, that's a unicorn. That is a unicorn. That is the definition of unicorn right there. <laughs> and and that's that was uh, that was uh, April of 2011. And I've done. I've lost count, but I've done 14 or 15 projects for them. And there's a big one coming up the end of this year that uh, they want to do it. It's just a question of getting the funding. Uh, but they, they've been a really good account. And that expertise led to, you know, being found via, you know, keyword searching. That's really important. Put in the right keywords that you want to be ranked for and, and blog about the stuff you know and put in those keywords and have good mm -hmm. meta tags. All that, oh, yeah. all that back end stuff you have to do. I'm on the first page of Google. I'm right below the ads. And whenever I get a call, one of the things I ask people is, so what keywords did you punch in? And they tell me, and I write those down. And I ask, you know, what compels you to click on my URL? And 90% mm -hmm. 90, 90 of the time, it's because I was not a paid ad. Yeah, and I really valued that feedback. It's what I call straw polling. And most people are very happy to tell you, you know, what words they put in. And, you know, that helped me refine the process. And I've been able to keep that, you know, page one ranking. And as uh, that led to more time-lapse work and a lot of construction-related time-lapse work, I got a call from a, a very large joint venture that's building one of the subway lines out here for L.A. Metro and they needed a photographer, and my name popped up in a search. And I could tell, I mean, after the first couple of sentences out of this woman's mouth, I could tell that she was a straight shooter. She was going to be up front. She sounded very professional. Turns out she was a, a reserve army captain, mm -hmm. and this was, this was her main gig, but she was in the army reserves, and so she was very spit and polish, direct, no BS. And we hit it off. And they hired me, and uh, that was uh, two years ago last month. I've been working for them, and that's led to other projects they're doing, and that's led to other projects. And I'm also a really big fan of going to outreach events. Uh, all of, you know, it's like, why do bank robbers rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Mm -hmm. I, go, I go to these contractor expos because that's where the builders are. They have booths. They're there to meet people. Uh, this is what October 1st of 2019. I've been to 15 outreach events so far this year. And, and that gets me a lot of contacts. I know some of these people already because I've been doing it a while. I can give I have handouts. I leave with people. I know how to speak their lingo. I know what's important to them in terms of the certifications and the training and the insurance I carry. I have my own PPE, which is personal protective equipment, shoes, hard hat, uh, vest, glasses, eye protection, gloves, ear protection. Uh, I have all the stuff with me in the car, so I'm very easy to engage in terms of business because I've been prepped and I have the certifications. And if other contractors work with me, it's easier to have to, for other contractors to say yes. So, you know, like anything else, it's just been a process of building on top of one success, building on the next success. And the failures are like a gut punch to the gut. I mean, sometimes they buckle my knees. But, mm -hmm. but... You know, you got to pick yourself up and go, eh, got to go on to the next one. You know, they win, I lose. You know, what's next? 
And that's the resiliency part you have to have. You're a good example of having to reinvent yourself every now and then. You just, the days of being in one place for 30 years or 40 years are over. And yes. you have to roll with it. And, and I, you know, I like that. I get bored too easy. I, I'm a competitive mm-hmm. bowler. And I've been on this one team for the last five years, and we all get along great. We have a lot of yucks. We just came from out of town at a tournament, you know, fun-filled. We made some money. It's been great. And I told him I want to, I'm going to switch to another team because after five years, you know, it's just time to have another experience. And I, it's what I call stick and move. And I, I do the same thing, you know, with the business. A lot of my friends, you know, marvel at the fact that I've been able to pivot from one specialty to another over my career where they've sort of been stuck in a rut. And I want various experiences. And I've done, you know, I did 100,000 pieces of flat art for Disney. I produced 57 coffee table books for them, several Sotheby's catalogs. I did nothing but architecture for 15 years. I did product shot for 15 years. I did professional headshots for 20 years. You know, I was a specialty specialist for a lot of different areas. And once I got out of it what I needed, it was time to move on. I, I love the challenge of going into something I'm not that good at and figuring out how to be one of the best in that area. And, uh, I mean, what else are you going to do? Otherwise, you get bored and you get stale. I want the unknown. I think you have professional ADD. (laughs) (laughs) And I've been called a few things, Bob, but that's a new one. That's a first. I like that. I'm going to put that on my car. Speaking of your car, what I like better is your tagline. Think like an artist, shoot like a director, edit like a storyteller. Yes. You shoot construction sites. How does that make you a storyteller? Yes. You know, I I had an epiphany and, and, you know, you're trying to communicate with clients in a very succinct way what it is you do. And for me, a construction site is live theater and the workers are actors and the activities they're doing are the scenes they're performing. And whatever the ambient light is, whether it's indoors or outdoors, sunlight or whatever, that's the lighting for that particular scene. And I am I'm trying to tell a story that's happening within that little tableau. If they're pouring concrete or or wiring rebar or building a form or have a have a man lift and they're going up in a bucket truck to, you know, tie girders together or they're they have a bulldozer and they got to, you know, level a pile of dirt before they compact it. There's a story right there. There's a beginning and middle and end. The activity starts, the activity gets to the midpoint, and then the activity ends. So there's your little story, your little mini tableau, if you will. And I'm a director, not in the sense that I tell the guys or the gals on the set what to do, but I'm a director in the sense of where I place the camera, the lens focal length I choose, the aperture for depth of field, am I dragging the shutter to create motion or am I freezing the action, and, you know, can I get all of that with a really good angle of lighting? Because the lighting is the one thing I actually have no control over. So hopefully I can position my camera in relationship to the lighting angle on the subject so it looks like it had some control over it. And so that's what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm thinking like an artist. I'm shooting like a director. And then when I edit like a storyteller, I take that raw data into, you know, my application is Lightroom, big surprise. Mm -hmm. But in there, you know, I'm pushing and pulling the lights and darks. I'm lifting the bottom end of the file and bringing some detail into the shadows. I'm pulling down the highlights, you know, the ones that are not blown out. I'm crunching the midtones. I'm adding a certain color relationship in terms of how much I use vibrance and then saturate or desaturate or lighten specific colors depending on what is in the scene. And then using gradients and mass to create, you know, what looks like if you were sitting in an audience and looking at a set of a construction site, here's the way that perhaps the lighting director would tone it. I'm a big fan of vignetting the corners, darkening the edges to bring your focus onto the subject. And I am, I'm, I'm like a, I'm the wizard of Oz. I'm, I'm pushing and pulling the levers is the reference I'm trying to make. Not that I'm the great Oz, but I'm, I'm pushing and pulling levers. I have a vision in my head that I sensed when I shot it and I can see the, 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 
the template, if you will, in the preview on Lightroom. Okay, this is a good shot. I can pull down this highlight. I can punch this midtone. If I bring a gradient pull down on the sky, I can bring this edge over and move us visually over to the center of the frame. You know, I'm thinking about all those things in my head. And, and so that's where all that comes from. Let me ask you this. You're doing a lot of post-processing. Yes. Once you get it the way you want, are you copying those settings and applying to other photos in the same sequence, or are you doing each one individually? <laughs> I do have a very long list of presets. Okay. But, but, but. I enjoy the process. It's cathartic for me. It's like therapy. It's like having a shoulder massage. And I like to think that I look at each picture with fresh eyes every time. And how can I make this picture sing? So uh, typically, uh, so for example, I shoot once a month for this contractor on this. It's a nine-mile subway line. And there are usually we make about 15 stops during an eight-hour shoot. Pardon me, I just hit the microphone. Uh, we make about 15, 13 to 15 stops, and I'll shoot about 1,000 pictures. And I deliver about 150. I go through very quickly. Yes, no, yes, no. You know, I, I make a quick pass. And, you know, my process is get rid of the pictures you don't like. Those are easy to find. And then the ones you like will be left over. And as I, as I pare down the pictures... And then I have about 150 maybe that I'm really going to tone. And, you know, gosh, two hours maybe it takes me. I'm pretty adept at it. I, I, I'm almost, you know, it's funny. When I'm editing, I almost, I think of Pinball Wizard. You know, I just sort of push the buttons and I'm feeling my way through the photograph. I'm not moving the sliders in a specific number. I'm moving the sliders to see what it looks like. I'm not mm -hmm. hitting specific numbers. This is a feel thing. Mm -hmm. I am emotionally invested in this photograph. A lot of people that do this kind of work, construction documentation, their attitude is, it's a freaking construction picture. Just take the picture and send it. They just want to see what it looks like. But a few moments of thinking about what you're doing on the site and maybe moving your body 10 feet to the left and dropping the camera down a foot, you're going to get a much more impactful image. And then if you spend another three or four minutes in post on it, pushing and pulling the tones, you have made an image. You have created a photograph. You haven't taken a picture. You've built a photograph. And it doesn't take much effort, at least not for me. And you know, if you're going to pay me to make pictures, you're going to get 110% I don't care if it's a nickel budget. I'm going to give you the best possible picture I can muster. And and that attitude has kept my standards high. And, you know, 40 years I've been doing it. So it's working, I guess. I'm glad you brought up your workflow. Many people, including me, make it up as they go along, change it around all the time. And I'm always looking for a better way to do it to make it more efficient. So I wonder if you could just walk us through your workflow. Do you upload the card? How do you do that? Just just quickly. Or is that is that your secret sauce you don't want to share? If I tell you, I'm going to have to kill you. So that's oh, uh, well, if you're... I'm, I'm pretty far away. So. <laughs> well, I have I have two different workflows since I do two main types of work. So when it's still pictures, uh, so uh, like I said, I make about 13 to 15 stops. So at the end of every stop. I just burn off one frame, shoot the ground, shoot the vehicle we're in or something. And I, so in between every site that I go to, there is a, there's an odd frame that makes no sense, and that's the break from one location to the next. Hmm. So when I, when I input everything into Lightroom, I click the first image, and then I click to right before that odd picture shows up. And I know from a, from a, 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 you know, a, a sheet that I carry with me what section of the job that is. So that might be the Oak Street Station. So then I'll, I'll select all those. I'll make a folder in you know, Lightroom called Oak Street and you know, drag all those pictures into that folder. And I, so then I did delete that burn frame grab the next frame and then, you know, command, uh, select, you know, uh, shift click until I get to the next burn frame and move that mm -hmm. group of pictures into the next folder. So it takes me about 
10 minutes to move a thousand pictures into 15 folders. And now mm-hmm. I've broken them down into manageable bites. And then I look at each folder and I, I'll X them. All I do is flag them X, 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 mm-hmm. the ones I don't like. The ones that I think are worth portfolio pieces or worth putting on the website or they're worth spending a little bit more time on all four and five star those. But, and then, and then I will make a reject folder in that folder that had all the Oak street pictures. I'll make a reject folder and drag all the rejects in there. And I'll do that again for all of the sites I go to. And within about an hour, I've, I've got that cut down to about, six or 700 pictures and then I'll go through them again and X more and X more, you know, I, I overshoot. So it, like for instance, the, the last shoot, they were cutting these huge I beams off. They, they're about 50 feet across and I don't know how many tons they weigh, but they had to be removed. And so there's a guy with a, a acetylene torch there and a guy with a crane and some workers. And so they're all moving about and I'm just set myself into a good spot to get an overall view and mm-hmm. then I shoot, I shoot as they're moving around and I wait until they're all in a position that they would be as if I was controlling them and saying, you stand here, you stand here, you do that. A lot of times I'll get that very look, but it might take me 15 shots over five minutes for that to happen. And I see that picture immediately. So the other 14 just get X'd. I'm not even going to waste mm-hmm. time with those. This is the killer picture. It has all the information. Uh, so that once I get all of that set up, then I go through the process of toning them and tweaking them. And then I'll go through one more time. If some of them don't make the cut, you know, they go into the reject folder. Do you make a virtual copy before you make the changes? No, no. You know, I, I, I do a lot of private students tutoring here in my office, and I'll do virtual copies for them to show mm-hmm. before and after. Uh, but no, I just work on the one file. Now, sometimes, sometimes I think that this image is pretty cool in black and white, but the client probably wants color. So I'll make yeah. a virtual copy and give them a black and white version as well. Mm-hmm. But that's but that's rare. Uh, it's a pretty efficient process. I have a a four bay drive attached to my my iMac. And each of the drives are six terabytes. Yeah, so I have redundant backups of all client mm-hmm. work. I keep I keep nothing on my desktop computer except the applications that run everything. Uh, everything else is offloaded onto these 24 terabyte storage system. And I have about 30 hard drives in a concrete line vault that are all files as well. It's ridiculous how much data I have. Yeah, it's, yeah, it adds up fast. And, and you know, when I when I do a time lapse film, you know, fifty thousand mm. images is not uncommon. A hundred thousand images on a shoot is not uncommon. Oh man! And, oh, and I have man. to have backups. I have to backups of all those, so it gets to be out of control. But the the, the filmmaking process, if if there is a better way for an artist to tell a story. I don't know how. I don't know what it is. It is, you know, technology lowers the bar for entry, which is a problem in terms of pricing. But if you're savvy and have some visual chops, the technology takes you to places that you just couldn't get to before. So mm-hmm. it, it's the best time and it's the worst time to be self-employed. Uh, and I struggle with that. But I just love, I feel like I'm driving a spaceship. <laughs> I'm I I'm I'm the console, you know, I got my keyboard and I got my after effects open and I'm, you know, creating moves in post that go with the organic moves I created when I shot and I'm fading out and fading in and, you know, zooming in or whatever it is I'm doing and, you know, I'm controlling the flow of the story. It, I am in charge of everything. And, you know, with great responsibility comes great power. Uh, or great power comes great response. I'm dyslexic, so I got that backwards. Oh boy! <laughs> but you know, I know we, what you meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, it, it's it's exciting. And if I didn't have to get paid for it, you know, I'd still do it. Uh, but but getting paid for it is sweetens it so much. So I'm very happy to be doing still photography. You know, 
sometimes and time lapse another video another time it's just it's just it's fun how can somebody who's like an everyday street photographer hobbyist apply these concepts to their work when they're out on the street and they're oftentimes just shooting one-off photos probably shouldn't be they should be working the scene like you do but should be, they should be working the scene yeah any any advice you could give these folks to people that are listening to this i mean how, how could they imply this uh, well i think it's i think it's a two-pronged attack they have to have the technical stuff down cold understand what your lenses are seeing you know what the perspective is understand how aperture drives depth of field understand how time the shutter speed affects motion or clarity understand lighting direction lighting contrast lighting color what white balance means in your camera and how to use it understand contrast management how to use off-camera flash you you, ha you gotta have the technical stuff down cold your your mobile device is not a professional grade camera it doesn't have the flexibility I don't care what the marketing people tell you you <laughs> need you need an actual camera uh, and have that down cold and, and also so what we're doing only has two steps there's data management and there's data capture and data management the data capture side is all the stuff I just described the data management side is what do you do after the fact? How do you get it into your system? How do you process it? How do you store it? How do you access it at a later date? You got to have those two things down and you have to do it in an adult, mature, professionally minded way. You're not winging it. There's a process to your madness. And, and what will help you drive that process is you have to know what kind of an animal you are. You have to know what gets your blood going. Do you like shooting people on the street? Do you like shooting controlled projects in the studio? Do you like doing motion pictures? What is it when you look at magazines or watch movies or read stories? What strikes you? What stops you cold and says, I got to do that? And go in that direction and learn everything you can about that. Find people who are doing that work. Get to know them if you can. Ask them questions. Take webinars. Practice, practice, practice. And understand that most of your pictures are going to be crap for a long time. And be brutal about editing your own work. One of the difficult things, one of the big mistakes I see time-lapse filmmakers make is they spend so much time on a, on a motion control shot in the field. It took them 20 minutes to set up the system. They sat there for five hours while the camera ran through its sequence, and they got this beautiful camera move, and it's a wonderful sequence. It doesn't fit in the movie you're cutting. It, doesn't, it, 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 it crashes the narrative. It slows down telling the story. It interrupts the flow. It doesn't belong in your film. And they'll put it in because, well, I did it, and I want to show it to people. Well, that's fine, but it's not working in this cut. You want to show it in some other little clip on your social media tag? Go for it. God love you and go for it. But if you're trying to put this into your film, it is slowing down the narrative and has no business being in this cut. And the same thing when you put things on your so on your website. My criteria is for, for the pictures that I put on my website, if this is the only picture that I could show to tell people what I do, if I can put this picture up and not go, eh, I wish it was better. If I, if I can't say that, then it goes in. So it, it's got to have a high standard. If I'm at all hesitant, would I want to be known for this kind of picture? If I'm at all hesitant about that, I don't show it. I have many, many, many more pictures that are on my, I mean, as, as everybody does. But you have to be militant and brutal about your own work. Because if you're not the marketplace surely will. And it ain't personal, folks, but your photography is not very good. Just, you know, as an outsider, not vested in who you are, but these, photog these photographs are not strong, and here's why. A lot of people, they just can't handle the truth. And it's a weakness. <laughs> I've made a few film references, haven't I? 
Well, I, yeah, I do that's live in okay. Hollywood, you're, so. you're, yeah, yeah, you're, not, you're a Hollywood <laughs> guy. You, you have to. <laughs> yeah, yes. Okay, so you're a storyteller. You specialize in telling your client's story. On your website, you tell your own story. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? I have a little, a couple little blurbs on every page. Uh, I... I I have a document, uh, an FAQ that kind of explains a little bit of my thinking when you're trying to prepare for a time-lapse film, uh, the, the way the site's organized. I, I have a document that I hand out uh, when I go see people and I send it to them electronically that has my story on it. And now that I'm talking through this based on your really good question, I should probably put that story on my website. That would be, you know what? You just showed me a flaw on my own site, so I could make my story better. No charge. Um, no charge. No charge. No charge. And I'm going to double the money back you paid me for being on the show here, so it's going to be perfect. Uh, you know, I, 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 I know the clients that I'm shooting for. I know what they want to see. I, want, I know what's important to them, mm-hmm. and this website is designed for the people in the construction and industrial industries. It's not for other photographers. It's not for web designers. It's not for design firms. I'm going after a very specific and narrowly defined market, and I spend a lot of time with these folks. They're my tribe, and... I ask all of them, how was it navigating through my website? They all say it was no problem. It was easy to find everything. I can't tell you how many emails I get on a weekly basis. Your website's outdated. Your website's not ranking. Your website needs needs to be redesigned. Well, you know what? It's working. I'm on page one. I just got a call from JBL, the speaker folks. Uh-huh. Uh, they're, they're doing a project and at the end of this month, and they want a time-lapse film. And the, the, they, the marketing people had the engineering people find a photographer and the senior engineer, my name came up and he called me. There wasn't anybody else that he called. So you tell me how obscure is that? And I show up on page one. So I know that my website works. I know that the presentation that I'm showing, you know, the, the format of the site itself may be a little dated. It's not a scrolling site. But, but but it works, and it's easy for me to manage on the back end. And I, I try to uh, talk to my clients in my blog in a way that I talk to them in person. I'm, I, I, I'm really focused on no typos and no bad grammar. I know there's a, a train of thought. You need to talk authentically, so if you're not so good in the grammar or the syntax, people overlook it. No, they won't. They won't. No. You'll, you'll, you'll come across as undereducated at worst, uh, at best, an idiot at worst. And I, I want to minimize the damage that's self-inflicted because, you know, working for yourself is hard enough. It, it seems like some days everything is against you. So why shoot yourself in the foot? If you can control any aspect of how you present yourself to the world, why wouldn't you take advantage of that and and work on that? You know, you got to be smart about it. You have to be brutal about how you present yourself. You, ask, you have to get solicitations from other people and what do you think of this? Should I write it this way? You know, you, you know get, some, get some reference points. Build up a cadre of people that you trust. You know, keeping your own counsel is good in certain areas and, and you know, detrimental to your well-being, mind and body and business in, in other areas. Uh, so you, you have to understand, you know, what you're about, what your strengths are, where you're weak, admit to those weaknesses and do the things that shore that up. I mean, why not? It's, it's not that it's easy to do. But it's necessary if you want to be a long-term, thriving, self-employed visual artist. These are the things that I've embraced. And as I said, you know, I'm 40 years in and, you know, enjoying things. With all this work you do, serving clients and making images and videos, how do you have time to teach? 
I make time to teach. Uh, yeah, how do I tell? You know what? I, I, what's great about being a teacher is that students connect you to the beginning of your career. The naivete and the simple questions they ask, the lack of knowledge, the lack of understanding instantly transports me back to that time and makes me sympathetic and empathetic to their journey and keeps me looking at things with fresh eyes because they ask questions that I wouldn't think of anymore because they don't know. Uh, so I make the time. Usually I teach at night. And also I'm fortunate. I'm fortunate that, the, you know, the films that I shoot, you know, they're, you know, high five-figure budgets, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, you know, nine, 10, 12,000 a month where I may be shooting four times a month. So I have a lot of downtime because the prices, the budgets are so good. Uh, you know, the work that I do, you know, an industrial photographer, uh, and I'm, I'm getting this information from other photographers I know, you know, at my level in this market, you know, about 3000 a day is about the rate you're going to get, you know. You know, some editing time is thrown in there. Uh, some of the licensing rights may be included in that. Um, some people may add their travel time in there. I, I tend to make it as an add-on. But, you know, about 3000 uh, for a job is, is about the rate that we're getting these days. It's not a very good rate compared to what we were getting when I first started. You know, if you're thinking about inflation and what I got back then, I should be 25 or 30 grand a day. But I'm not doing advertising work. This is a very different animal. Client direct, you know, documentation work. This is a very high rate for this kind of work. And I'm grateful for it. Uh, and, um, boy, you have to be realistic. Um, you have to be, um, Gosh, I can't think of the word. You have to be realistic about where you are. You know, everyone's a link in a chain. There's people that are better than me and make more money, and I'm better than other people and make more money. You know, you're just a link in a chain, uh, and you have to recognize that. And um, when, I'm, when I'm teaching, I try to communicate that to these young photographers so they understand what's ahead of them. And I embrace them and welcome them into the photography community. But damn you, you're going to work at it or you're not going to do well in my class. You know, this is a hard enough profession without laggards and people that don't want to put in the work. Uh, so I'm, I, I push them pretty hard because I want them to get past that initial technology hump of f-stops and shutter speed and exposure and learn to embrace their inner creativity and produce amazing work and that's always the goal that 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 makes me make the time yeah what is the class that you teach well i just finished a basic photography class and i do basic lightroom i used to teach basic photoshop but after 20 years i just don't want to teach that program anymore and the reason the reason that I teach the basic classes is I want to ensure that they get good, solid information at the very beginning of their journey so they have a foundation to fall back on. You know, I, I tell the students in the basic photography class, this is going to be probably the hardest class you have because it's the foundation. It is f-stop, shutter speed, aperture, ISO, qualities of light. Uh, equivalent exposures, you know, panning, motion control in terms of, you know, shutter drag. It's all the mechanical stuff on your camera, what all the buttons, bells, and whistles are for. You know, you have to be very conversant with your camera, and it has to become like an appendage that just becomes an extension of you. Uh, it, it, it has to become an intuitive thing. And I, and I, I want to get them early and get them good, solid information. I, I, I've never had an opportunity to teach an intermediate class or advanced. You know, I have done some independent study, but I like the foundational classes for that reason. Since you teach people who are basically beginners, do you require them to all come to the class with the same camera so you're not dealing with the ins and outs of 12 different models or everybody yeah. shows up with whatever they have? 
Boy, you have hit the nail on the head. That is one of the things that makes this class so incredibly difficult is Fuji, Canon, Olympus, Sony, Nikon. And they come in with various grades of camera from a point and shoot to a top end Nikon and everything in between. And I have them bring in their manuals, although lately manufacturers are not providing manuals. It's all mm -hmm. electronic. And we try to find out where the white balance settings are, the format settings are, file size set, all that stuff. And hands down, cannons are the simplest to get through all that stuff. They put important things at the top of the menu hierarchy. They're simple mm -hmm. to get over on. Sony and Nikon, oh, my God, I wish I'd never seen those cameras. They're good cameras. <laughs> Don't get yeah. me wrong. They're great technology. What a pain in the butt to use these things. And when you're dealing with an intro student who can't doesn't know an F-stop from a bus stop, you know, you're just making it so much more difficult for everybody. But, you know, that's how the, the classes are set up. And um, trying to find all this information, it really bogs down the class. So a lot of the onus is on students to read through their 250-page manual and find out, you know, what – Nikon's version of white balance is. It's not the words white balance. It's some other nomenclature I can't recall right now. And, and they, they, you know, and they all want to be mm -hmm. different. And, and then, and then the live view thing. You know, going to these mirrorless cameras. I'm sorry, mir mir I'm sorry. Mirrorless has nothing to do with what, what I'm about to say. I got that wrong. But yeah. now, so much information is on the back of the camera on the screen. Yeah. You know, they figured, let's put it all on the camera itself and we don't have to give them a manual. But it's you can't put enough <laughs> clear, clear information on these things. It's not smart. And it makes me nuts. And I I I rag about it. But, you know, we, we got to deal with it. And it, it's difficult sometimes. So, yeah, boy, it would be so much easier if they could all just bring in the same camera model. But then, you know. It's not about conformity. It's about, you know, individual. But, you know, a lot of these students buy cameras because someone said something or they read something. And they didn't really know what they were reading, and so they bought a camera. I, I'm a big advocate of buying a camera bigger than your needs so you grow into it. But these people, it's going to be a decade before they grow into this camera. You know, they're getting something way, way too big. And, and I, you know, I, that's frustrating for me, for them too. It's going to be replaced in two years anyway. When I was in Cleveland, I belonged to the Cleveland Photographic Society, and we had an excellent course. It was taught three, four times a year, and at the beginning of every course, they'd have members come in and help students with camera familiarization. Mm -hmm. Well, at least in our town, about 40% of the people had Canon, about 40% had Nikon, and the rest had something else. Mm -hmm. I, I shot Canon for years and years, but switched over to Fuji. And I said, well, I can help with the Fujis, I can help with Canon, you know, whatever. So that I was always in charge of the other group. So there'd be <laughs> Fuji, there'd be Sony, <laughs> they, some Leicas sometimes, mm -hmm. you name it, or, or, you know, some weird old mirrorless uh, Canon that they made years ago. And so they'd all be in our group, and we'd be running around trying to help like six people with six different cameras, yeah. And it was difficult. It was really mm -hmm. difficult. I mean, even if you're in the Canon group or the Nikon mm -hmm. group, the different mm -hmm. models are so different. It's this last class that I had, uh, one of the students is a very successful uh, film producer. He does a lot of stuff for Adult Swim, a lot of animated stuff. And he wanted to get into photography and bought a really high-end Leica mirrorless with a really nice lens, you know, six, seven thousand mm -hmm. dollar body oh, yeah. and lens combination. And the manual, it is big and intimidating. And they don't make it very easy to find out information like how to change your settings to third stop increments. It's not intuitive right. and it's not straightforward. But we he actually came over to my office for an additional two-hour private lesson to get some of this stuff understood because we couldn't we were googling this information and we couldn't find it and I, <laughs> I know I have some I have some information I have some knowledge about these cameras I've been doing it for a while and so I was able to finally figure out how to do it but it wasn't easy and and why make it so bloody difficult why have the camera do all of these things 
when people really wanted to do this basic stuff, like take good pictures and know where to get the right white balance and how to set the file size and how to set the color space and what color mode or picture style are you using. Just give them the basic stuff. Why have it do so much? Because the marketing guys want to sell you a big camera. Because it can do all these things. Yeah, but who's using all of these things that it can do? Very small part of the market. Makes me nuts. Pretty much nobody. Yeah, it's like you say, it's all marketing. They all do the same thing. They all do the same thing. Yep. yep. Yeah, I have a, my workhorse setup is a 5D Mark III mm-hmm. and the 24 to 105 F4. Uh, I have a free app that I do shutter counts on all of my cameras since, uh, you know, I have I have 14 cameras and I have to keep track of all the shutter counts because of the time lapse work. I have to, you know, pull a camera if the actuations are too high and it might crap out on me. But the Canon 5D Mark III with the 24 to 105 F4 and I have a Tiffin quarter black mist filter on to keep highlights from blossoming when I shoot into the sun. That setup is so amazing. If I had a few more megapixels, I wouldn't mind, but it's low light capability. It's craftsmanship. I haven't found a compelling reason to upgrade to something yet. And, uh, you know, my next camera will probably be mirrorless. And there's a Canon Professional Service Center, you know, 10 miles from my house. So they have lots of events there. And I went to something a couple of weeks ago. It was all about their mirrorless cameras and what they can do. And I think I'm convinced that I, I'll get mirrorless as the next go-round. But, folks, if your camera's getting you what you need to get, then it's a good camera. And, you, you know, I blow off the camera after every shoot, wipe down the grease and the dirt, check the battery, check the contacts on the, on the, flat, on the, on the capture card, uh, you know, check it for any dings or scratches. You know, I, I don't abuse it, but, it, you know, it, there, it's on a construction site a lot, so it, it gets dirty. And I've had concrete splattered on my camera. I just wipe it off. You know, uh, you buy good stuff and it's going to last, but buy smart good stuff. You know, smart in terms of you can deal with it. Uh, I, I'm comfortable with the Canon family. Uh, I don't think that their mirrorless cameras could hold up to what I put my 5D through. So if I do upgrade, you know, for my construction documentation work, it's probably going to be the Mark IV. But uh, I'm buying a new motion control system for the time lapse work. And it's really, it, it, it has a payload up to 20 pounds. Mm. Uh, but it, it's probably going to be easier to deal with it, work with it, uh, with the capabilities of the motion control system. If I have a mirrorless camera sure. in terms of follow focus and tracking focus, uh, but we'll, we'll see. Uh, but I, I don't, I don't upgrade on a regular basis. It just, I, I don't succumb to that marketing stuff. It's a tool. You have good tools. It, you know, it's funny. You, you brought that up many, many years ago. Uh, a colleague of mine that I went to art center with and we graduated, he went into product, uh, product line. He was a representative for Lowe's low pro and, uh, mm-hmm. and something else. And he was in town for a conference. He called me up. I flew, I, I drove down to LAX and met him at his hotel. We had dinner and we were talking and I had just gotten the five D I think it was. And I was so excited about the camera. It was this precious thing. And I pulled it out of the bag and I showed it to him. And I was handling it like it was a Fabergé egg. And he goes, <laughs> it's just a tool. It's, it, it, that's all it is. It's just a means to an end. It's not this precious artifact that you have to protect. And I, I, first of all, it was blasphemy. I couldn't, I couldn't believe I was in the same room with this guy. What are you talking about? And then I realized it's just a bloody tool. And that's what they are. I have good tools, and I have a good toolkit. And I'm a builder. I build photographs. And, you know, that attitude has minimized my anxiety over my gear. You know, I take care of it. It's good gear, but I don't live for it. It's a means to an end. And, you know, I, I'm not romantically entangled with my equipment anymore. <laughs> or emotionally entangled. Not romantically, emotionally. Yeah, same thing. Uh, same thing. I hope not. All right, Michael. Well, hey, I, I really have to thank you for taking the time to talk. 
before we go, though, I wonder if you can tell everybody where they can find you. Uh, you've, you've got a great domain name. Right? I have a great domain name, yes. Buildabetterphotograph.com. <laughs> Is And that was based on a book I wrote called Build a Better Photograph. You can find it on Amazon. And that, be, that begat a podcast called Build a Better Photograph. And I had this whole idea. Uh, a, a successful photograph is a series of small decisions made correctly. That's what I try to drill into my students' head. A successful photograph is a series of small decisions made correctly. And that spawned this whole Build a Better Photograph Thing that I developed and thought it was going to make me a jillion dollars and put me on a worldwide tour, and it didn't. So, but I kept the name buildabetterphotograph.com, and uh, now it works perfectly for the construction industry. Who would have thunk it at the time? Who would have thunk it? Certainly not me, but I'm happy to have it, and that's what I do. Well, thanks again, Michael. Appreciate you taking the time. It's been my pleasure, Bob. I look forward to seeing it published. Or hearing it published. <laughs>